Paul McGregor, delighted to have you on my show, the Purpose Led Leadership Podcast. We connected recently on LinkedIn. I have to say, I've been following you for quite a while now. Very impressed with the authenticity and the realness of your content. Um, I want to get to know you as a human being. Um, so before we go into that, tell the audience what you actually do. Sure. So thank you for the amazing introduction. Um, so founder of a company called Every Mind at Work. So we focus pretty much on mental well-being in the organization. So looking at reinventing it, you know, we believe it's broken. It's very reactive. There's a real lack of understanding about the importance of mental health in the workplace. So we, we work with organizations on a, on a yearly basis. Mm. And yeah, it started with just me and we're still a relatively small team, but there's 15 of us now and all very passionate about it. And yeah, as, alongside that, share a lot about my own story, my own journey, raise awareness of mental health. And have done that for I think the last six to seven years now. Fantastic. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stigma. Even the words or the word mental, mental health, mental well-being. There's a lot of stigma just for some people to even say that. You use the term mental well-being. So I want a couple of questions. Firstly, around is there a difference between mental health and mental well-being in your eyes? And I think there's a lot of unregulated advice out there. There's some good advice and some bad advice. Talk to us about what you think your perception is of the landscape around mental health in terms of the advice that's going out there and the stigma attached to even the words mental health? Mm. I think the the landscape of, of mental health at the moment, it's the Wild West, if you want to if you want to call it that, you know, there's so much advice being thrown out there. There's so much stuff that we're uncovering and, mm. and discovering of of what mental health is. And I think that comes with a, a lot of a confusion around the language that you can use, you can't use. You know, we, we reference mental well-being. Mental well-being, in, in my opinion, is the same as mental health. Yeah. Um, mm. One of the key associations that I always try and get across is the difference between mental health and mental illness, though. Because I always think about my upbringing. Mental health, to me, meant mental illness. And then when I think of mental illness, I had this very negative association with yeah. it, you know, mm. straight jackets, padded cells, like that kind of mm. association. Mm. So as you said, if you, even if you hear the words mental health, we have an association with it and it's often negative. So there's definitely different words of different languages that are being used to try and increase awareness for sure. But yeah, yeah it's a, I think it's just mental health is, is emotions, it's vulnerability, it's, mm. it's being human and we need to uncover that a bit more. So you've got 15 people. So, 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 so talk to us about what you do and what they actually do to sort of move the dial. Because I myself, as people know, um, I'm a strong advocate of being vulnerable, being open and, and sharing your story. And I know you are as well. I think that's one of the first things to do, right? But it has to go beyond that, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, our, one of our core values is to be personal and it's also to be relatable. It's also to be empowering. So... That's something that we try and get into the organization. All 15 of us will live by those core values, but equally then outside of that organization. So every business we work with, they have to embrace our personal approach. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure there's some corporates that, that wouldn't embrace the personal approach. They're a little bit put off by it, you know, a bit fearful of it, yeah. you know, human in the workplace. Yeah. But then there are so many organizations that we work with, you know, with a wellbeing partner for Wagamama, um, for Co-op, for Superdrive, for construction right. companies many others and what's surprising to me is they really embrace that personal experience mm. and that personal approach so mm. everything we do is 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 around that but it's all clinically backed you know we have a, a clinical psychologist we have a, a trainee psychologist so making sure that when we deliver on personal experience whether it's me or anyone from the team yeah that the content and what we're suggesting is still you know signed off by a clinical psychologist which is something that's really important to us as well yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. I would challenge that as well a little bit around, I think sometimes people can have letters and qualifications after their name, but they lack the kind of personal experience as well. And I think mm. sometimes the personal experience is invaluable to have that relatability with somebody who's got mental health challenges as well. And I think that, but obviously both ideal, um, but I, I think that you kind of have to go through it to know, to be able to even give some sort of, not advice advice is the wrong word isn't it but to mm -hmm. have some sort of empathy and understanding yeah i think it's a it's a collaboration between the two you know lauren who we work with and you know millie as well who's a trainee psychologist mm. have 
personal experience and yeah. it's about us in a collaboration with them and and them understanding it in that way but totally agree with you i mean if you take suicide grief as an example it's a very unique grief and what i tend to find is i'll get a lot of value from someone who's been through that yeah. in comparison to a psychologist who's never experienced that but has maybe read it from a textbook right so again i think hmm. i'm totally I'm totally with you on that but i do think it's the collaboration between the two that's that's important and it's very yeah. hard to just deliver on personal experience without some evidence behind it. So yeah. it's, it's trying to find that balance. Well, of course. And in, even the sort of language that you use, I mean, on, in a basic format, we can't say committed anymore. It's mm. suicidal thoughts or ideation and things mm. like that. And it, it's amazing how even the, the use of words can have a big difference around how people approach and deal with things, right? Mm. Yeah. It's, but again, it's, it's, it's education. Mm. You know, I remember the first time I did a presentation um, about you know, my story about my experiences of mental health. It was about six years ago, um, maybe five years ago. And mm -hmm. it was recorded. And in it, I said something along the lines of, if you struggle with OCD, you're going to worry about this slide because there was a little bit of a, a spelling error on it. Right. And then I went on to talk about, you know, my dad, my experience, my depression, yeah. and, and why mental health in men is really important. I then look back on that clip now, years later, and I cringe. I'm like, yeah. why did I say that statement? And yeah, the reason yeah. why I said that statement is then, yes. my understanding of OCD was what I was taught by mm. these TV shows, yeah. by like, Right, you know what right, I read. Right. Yeah. Now my understanding of OCD through hearing people's experiences, intrusive thoughts, all of that, it's massively different now. Mm. So even though I used the wrong language back then, it was yeah. purely from a place of lack of education. Whereas sure. now I'm educated and I understand it differently. You won't yeah. hear me say, "Oh, I'm a little bit OCD" along those lines because I see it massively different now. Yeah, I think your you, your intention's in the right place, though, isn't it? But mm. I think sometimes we can tread on eggshells. Sometimes you know, if you say the wrong word, people mm. can jump on people, which I think is on necessary but i also think that um what pisses me off sometimes is people's lack of understanding or people's ability just to kind of think people are playing the mental health card mm. too soon but to counter that i think there is times you might not like this when i do think that people abuse mental health and play that card too quickly when they haven't got anything not necessarily wrong, but they're not suffering. Mm. So I think it, it can be very delicate sometimes, can't it? Yeah, it's, I think we're learning. And it's human behavior, right? I, I think certain individuals will use physical health as, as an excuse to, yeah, you know, true. how many people have not come into work on a Monday because they've got a stomach bug, but the reality of it was they had a heavy night on Sunday, right? And yeah. they don't want to come in. So <laughs> it's the same way potentially that they might, you know, use mental health for that, for that reason. So I mm. think it's, it's, it's important that we, we are aware of that. But like you yeah. say, it's what's the caveat to that? I'd rather allow the 99% of people yeah. to feel more safe and comfortable sure. to talk than, as you say, look at that 1% that might use it. Absolutely. I'm really excited to go into your journey uh, which we'll go into soon, but you touched on a good point, actually, the physical and mental health aspects. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where mental health is treated in the same way as physical health? Maybe not while I'm alive, <laughs> <laughs> which is hard to hear, but um, maybe. I think we have a long way to go and it's, and it's, and it's getting there. Mm. But what's really interesting to me with physical health, if you look at physical health and you look at all of the different, you know, however you want to call it, subcategories of physical health, you look at fitness and you've got CrossFit, you've got, you know, yes, HIIT training, you've got all these spin, you've got all these different categories yeah. of that. Mm -hmm. We still see mental health as like this one broad category that we all have to understand. Yeah, I yeah. think what I'm starting to see now is there's smaller subcategories growing. You know, you're talking about raising awareness and the conversations around the menopause. You know, you're looking at different types of, you know, individuals that might be dealing with different mental health challenges. Mm. What I'm starting to see now is more services and companies that are being very specific to certain areas of mental health, which is... yeah which is starting to happen. But you think of like physical health in comparison oh to mental God. health. We've yeah, still got a long way to go. So w w give us some examples of, of the types of mental health then, would you say? I think if you look at 
the first known charity for mental health, it was Mind. Mm. You know, Mind were very focused on reducing stigma and getting this message across that everyone has mental health. Yeah. And I feel like that message is now slowly getting there. People are understanding that a lot more. But then you've got smaller, again, using a charity as a comparison, smaller charities that might be focused on panic attacks, might be focused on right. ADHD. Um, I'm a trustee of a charity called Suicide & Co. They focus purely on providing support to those bereaved by suicide. So you've now got these individual charities that mm. are focused on specific areas. Yes. And it's the same in the, in the, in the almost corporate space. Mm. You know, you look at the corporate space, you used to have an employee assistance program which was mental health support for all. <laughs> and yeah. it's very one size fits all tick box. Whereas yeah. now the companies that are doing it well have a holistic package of, we might have coaching, we have menopause support, we have support here for individuals, yeah. men's in particular, fathers, you know, all these different channels and communities in the business. So I, that's the way that I see it going. Yeah, I mean, again, we, I'm careful to use the word advice, but I, I don't necessarily think anybody who hasn't got lived experience or qualifications mm. should be helping someone. But sometimes you're in a situation where uh, that person needs help and the only person is that person. So for me, I'm a mental health first aider. I've got lived experience and I've, I feel I've got some capacity to offer some sort of knowledge and wisdom in this area. Um, not, com not as much as compared to you or other people, but something, right? But I've always said that... Um, it's okay not to be okay. We've all got mental health, but each person's situation is different and unique to them. Mm. So it's very important that we don't say, this is what I would do, this is what you should do. It's more around the approach of listening, understanding, empathizing, and kind of not offering solutions, mm. but just more so having some compassion, would you say? Yeah, 100%. I talk about this a lot, and I'm sure we'll dive into it deeper, but... Mm. You know, when my dad was going through the challenges that he, he was having, you know, I used to try and solve it for him. And I look back on that now and I try to solve it for him because I'm trying to wrap my arms around him and, and, yeah. and take that pain away from him. So I would say, dad, let's go for a walk. Dad, let's go and watch the football. Dad, let's yes. do this. Um, yes. But then fast forward a few years later when I was in a really low place myself, what I come to quickly understand was I never wanted someone's solutions. I wanted their ears. Mm. You know, if I'm feeling comfortable to open up to you and I'm saying, you know, hey, Chris, I'm feeling this way. Yeah. I just want you to listen. I don't want yeah. you to say, I did a puzzle last night and it was great for how <laughs> I felt, right? Mm. Um, so I think people neglect the importance of listening, but also they forget that listening is so difficult in that situation. Yeah. We can all say we're very good listeners, but when someone that maybe we love or even a stranger or someone at work is openly talking about how they're feeling, we become vulnerable. And when we feel vulnerable, we become uncomfortable and we want to stop that feeling. So it's very, yes. it's the reason why we go, hey, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. I'll take care of this. But yeah, 100%, as you say, I think any mental health first aider, champion, mm. anyone with lived experience, a manager, a friend, mm. if we just listen a bit more, we can definitely help people. Definitely. Um, I mean, this subject is so close to my heart. I mean, I've, I've had three suicide attempts. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that, actually. But I want to talk about your journey. And I know you've had some significant trauma in your life. So tell the audience, uh, if you don't mind, a bit of a journey since you left school. And, you know, if, there's a few items I'm sure you, you'll be happy to discuss as well mm. in relation to your family. So Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of was, I grew up in a, in, I'm, I'm from Essex and, you know, played football and, you know, school was pretty standard to be honest um and it's funny when you think back to school it's probably the same as you like once mm. you identify with emotions i was probably quite an insecure anxious person yeah but no one saw that i was quite confident on on the face of it but you know family life was was all okay but you know all of that changed when i was 18 through through an experience i had with my dad and my dad was someone who was a very driven man mm -hmm. he was an engineer he was, he was entrepreneurial, my dad, but I think he was brought up by my granddad who was very safe and secure. So his entrepreneurial itches was that he become a qualified physiotherapist and he had a small business from home. You'd call it a side hustle now, but yeah. he had that in the spare room. But engineer by trade, physiotherapist in the evenings and weekends, mm. run every day, meditated in 2006 before meditation wow. was cool. <laughs> um, psychology A-level, yoga reiki so someone who was very focused on 
doing well. Mm. And um, yeah, literally all of that changed, as I would say, overnight. His behaviors changed. He was now telling us that he was struggling. Um, his body language, like his eyes were very distant. And in that moment, you're a bit shocked because we didn't expect that to happen. Mm-hmm. We're never looking for those signs as well. And my dad, we took my dad to the doctors. He was diagnosed with depression. He was signed up from work. He was um, prescribed antidepressants. And six days later, he attempted suicide for the first time. And, you know, we can dive into that story, but that, that suicide attempt come to a massive shock to us all. It wasn't just us, it was his colleagues, it was his friends, it was everyone. And, you know, when my dad could physically talk and tell us how he mm. was feeling, mm. and we asked him the question, did you try and take your own life? Yeah. It was like, no, never have done that. That's selfish. You know, I would never have done that to you. Yeah. And he pretty much blamed it on the medication because my dad wouldn't take paracetamol to cure a headache. And he was taking these antidepressants and on the, the packet it says side effects, suicidal thoughts within the first two weeks. Wow. So we was like, okay. What, what medication was that? Uh, I think it was Prozac. So I think okay, and every antidepressant right. might be wrong here, but a lot of antidepressants have suicidal warnings yeah. as, a, as one of the side effects in the first two weeks. Mm. So, but again, this shows the whole approach to mental health and mental illness back then. You go home maybe a week after his recovery, two weeks after his recovery. And because he's saying he's okay, mm. you're like, okay, <laughs> we'll mm. brush it under the carpet. He'll go back to work. Everything will be fine. But yeah. um, you know, to, to compress the story down, my dad ended up deteriorating, get, got worse. He got suicidal again. Mm-hmm. Because he was suicidal again, he then ended up being sectioned. So right. he was sectioned into a local mental health unit. We spent about four and a half months that then followed of, if my, with my dad in a mental health unit. Mm. So he started in like a really secure ward. Then he was allowed, you know, out into like the, the canteen bit. Then he was allowed out into the main hospital and yeah. and then he was allowed home. And he just never really recovered from that. And, you know, there was times when he was okay. There was times when he was struggling. Mm. But then, you know, big part of the, the work that I do, the main reason why the, the work that I do is is we did end up losing him to suicide and, and we lost him to suicide on the, the 4th of March, 2009. He was 45 when he took his own life. Wow. Um, I was 18, nearly 19. And yeah, my life got changed up, turned upside down. I mean, how do you, yeah. I didn't I didn't have the tools to deal with that. No. It was very much man up, wear a mask, go out to a nightclub six days later, go back to work, get on with it. And and yeah, that got me into a pretty dark place. After Who was telling years. you to man up? Myself. Right. I think, you know, I was, I felt uncomfortable being vulnerable. Right. I was never taught really how to manage stuff like mm. that. So society, how you're managed, even how you're parented, perhaps indoctrinated you and me and most of most of us men and women to, to, to not show that emotion, right? Or not yeah. feel that emotion. Yeah, I think it was, yes, I've been through this horrific experience, but mm. even though my mates are like, you're okay, Paul. Yeah, fine. You know, I'm good. Mm. And to be honest with you, I, I would also add to that, suicide grief comes with a lot of shame as mm, well. Of course it does, yeah. So I didn't feel comfortable talking about it because of that reason as well. It's like, is there going to be judgment on my dad? Is there going to mm. be judgment on me as a family? You know, I'm, I'm quite open about this now. I used to lie about how my dad died, you know, because I yes. Yes. used to say he died in a car accident because I didn't want yeah. the questions and the shame and all of that. So I think suicide grief comes with a lot of shame, but that shame just caused me to, yeah, just keep it to myself and suffer in silence for a long time. Did it time. come with resentment towards your dad as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I that's, had, that's a common thing, isn't it? Well, you, know, you get that blame and all that. Yeah, I, I, I had times where I was just so angry at my dad for him taking his own life. And mm. it sounds horrible saying that, but, you know, because I didn't understand it and you're always mm. looking for the why and now you'll never know the why because you can't ask that person. It's like, yeah. well, there's so much anger that, that sometimes is directed at that person. Mm. Um, and there's also a lot of misunderstanding of the fact that because my dad was such a, a happy guy, a loving guy. A, yeah. I used to think, is it, was that a lie? Mm. Like, did Was the dad that I know and the dad that I yeah. loved the actual person? Yeah. Or was there someone else that I never got to see. So a lot of that was made it very difficult for me in those early years. But yeah, through lots of therapy and lots of work, I've had mm. to work through that a lot. This this reminds me, when, when someone asks me how I am, I genuinely, genuinely tell them 
how how I am. Mm. So if I'm feeling anxious or nervous or depressed or whatever, you know, I, I, will, I will actually say that. And mm. I've, I've learned to do that because your dad is a prime example. On the, you know, there's guys like Gary Speed, the famous mm. footballer. You know, he had everything on. You'd think about it, um, but I think it's I think it's um, it, it's it's really interesting that on the face of it, he had everything that you could ever want, mm. but it feels like he was in a lot of pain and trauma and this was just more of a facade to cover things up would you say yeah 100 percent. there's a um a concept called social perfectionism right right which is is very of the belief that everything from the outside has to look and be perfect because of what you're Mm. seeing and feeling internally Mm. so my dad was called mr perfect sometimes and he had this facade of everything was good and i do feel in his example he was obviously using that as a form of hiding what he was feeling and what he was seeing yeah. because of the shame that come with that mm-hmm. and i start i try i'm trying to talk about this a lot more in my content now that i feel that we see self-care as just going for a walk in nature and right the 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 small activities that we might do on a daily basis which are important mm. But in my dad's example, he meditated, he did yoga, he yeah. did Reiki, he had a psychology just degree. Just got a plaster over it, really. Underneath all of that, what mm. was it? I think underneath mm. all of that, there was shame, there was yeah. fear of vulnerability, there was all of that stuff that he couldn't work through. Do you know what? That's a really, really good point because there's a big thing on all the platforms about, you know, put yourself first. And it is about, you know, what's your morning routine? Mm. And, you know, are you drinking water? And all this, and that, that are you exercising that all really really helps but unless you do that inner work mm-hmm. and you and you embrace these feelings um and talk about it i think i think ha, but how would someone do that what, what again not advice but what um what knowledge would you give someone around if they're doing all the right things but they're still feeling that kind of stuff yeah i think from personal experience you know as you said, I, I run a lot. I, I go for walks. I mm. um, journal. I, I, I do yeah. all of that stuff. But that only benefits me now because I still do a lot of the uncomfortable stuff. So yeah. a good example is therapy. First time I went to therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it wasn't the first time, but the first time I opened up to a therapist a few years after my dad's suicide. Yeah. Cry my eyes out to her. Like that's very uncomfortable this Mm. stranger yeah of course (laughs) that i'm now saying my dad killed himself i don't know how to deal with it and i'm crying and then the shame kicks in automatically of like what are you doing you know why are you crying to this person Mm. you should never go back because you should feel embarrassed now yeah yeah but i kept going i kept going i kept showing up i kept opening up to her and as the time went on i felt more comfortable to be uncomfortable in front of my mum, my brother, yeah. my friends, my now wife. Yeah. So that, you know, was hard. And even now, like I still do a lot of stuff that's really, really hard to do and really uncomfortable to do. Mm. The difficult conversations you have to have with yourself with other people. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think unless you do that hard, uncomfortable stuff, yeah. that one, we're not really being taught to do and, and two, we don't want to do it because it's uncomfortable the meditation, the walks, all of that self-care, the morning routine, as you said, it almost becomes a plaster over a massive wound that you've got that just keeps, you know, weeping out and you just keep putting plasters on it, but it's going to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. I think it's about awareness, being honest with yourself and having accountability. So as an example, you know, I've, I've built massive businesses, lost it. I've been, I have the highest of highs, I've had the lowest of lows. I've been down, I've had mental health stuff, but even recently, the last two years of my life have been absolutely phenomenal in terms of relationships, finances, business, spirituality, all this kind of stuff. But I still get wobbles. Mm. The last couple of weeks, I've had uh, quite a lot of anxiety. And I, and I feel that it's almost like when I I now almost, uh, I accept it. I embrace it. I wouldn't say I look forward to it, but it was almost like, A, it tells me I've still got more, more work to do. B, it tells me we're never out of the woods. And mm. C, when I, when I do feel those horrible feelings of anxiousness and depression, and I, I actually learn to lean into them and, mm. and, and I'm curious and I kind of, I don't go for a drink or I don't go for a run to sort it out. That does help. I actually say, hang on a second, what is that? What is that? And I'm, I just, I try to embrace it. Mm. That's what I try to do. It's really hard. I, I had this conversation the other day. So from a leadership point of view, I had to do an update. Or I did an update to the team about our direction, our focus. And it's 
been an assumption that I've had for about 12 to 18 months, sat on it, it's not gone anywhere. So I'm like, okay, yeah. this is where we need to shift a lot of our focus. And I put this presentation together, run it past, you know, we've only got a small leadership team, but what do you guys think? They're all on board. Okay, now I've got to share out to the whole team. Mm-hmm. I shared out to the whole team and I'm nervous yeah. and I'm worried and I'm, I'm delivering it. And then all of a sudden, no one says anything. Mm. Any questions? No. Okay. Close the Zoom. And straight away, I'm like, I wanted reassurance. And, and yeah. I start questioning, why do I want reassurance in that moment? So I reached out to a guy I knew. And I was like, I was nervous. Don't know why I was nervous. And then I wanted reassurance. Don't know why I wanted reassurance. And he said, and, and. And he was like, you're trying to eradicate feeling. Yes. You can't completely eradicate any of that feeling. Right. That makes sense. And it's almost like, where, where are you and I and everyone else? Where are we trying to get to? Yeah. You know, this. I don't think this is ever going to get us to a place where we don't have feelings of so you're, say, you're, so you're saying it's actually okay to have to want a bit of a dopamine hit it's okay to want a bit a few more likes on your it's, 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 it's almost not don't beat yourself up to have to have those feelings because you, yeah. you're a human being right it's like, not, not to an extent of I think it's having that balance though and I think I think mm. that self talk and that self I think um, it's so important to give yourself a break around okay I'm having a wobbly day and I need some validation from somebody that's okay mm. yeah and I think it's just it's more about that, as you say, where are we trying to get to with, with mental health and self-help and, and self-care and all of this? It's Are we trying to yeah. get to a place where we have no feeling <laughs> and yeah. we, we don't have the, the struggles and the fears and the challenges? I, I don't think that that's a healthy place to be. I think, no. as you say, it's embracing those moments where you are feeling anxious, you are having fear. It's mm. showing you're human all the time. And that's the biggest challenge yeah. that I've had because because of losing my dad to suicide, my biggest fear is I'll end up like him. And mm. I become so obsessed with self-improvement, so mm. obsessed that I would just yeah. dive into all of this stuff. And yeah. But then I got into a place where I'm trying to get to a point in my life which is impossible, where mm. I have no challenge, yeah, yeah, just pure state of bliss. Like, yeah. that, that, just, I don't think that's just, healthy. It's never gonna happen. Um, no. So it's, as you say, I think being able to to maybe turn them to my team and say, yeah. and I did to some of them, like, you know, I was a bit nervous there. I was really nervous. Yeah. I think that as a leader is really important. Yeah. I saw, I, I, I've read a lot of Carl Young stuff, who's a psychologist, and he he, can, he likened it to uh, an American football field, mm. your mind and your happiness and your joy. There's two end zones. One end zone is when you're flying, you're doing really well. One end zone is when you're dark and depressed. You don't really want to be in it, either one for too long because if you're flying really high, you can bet your bottom dollar that something's going to happen to bring you back mm. down, but you've got to enjoy that moment. And mm. then when you're in the, the other, and it's like this too shall pass and it's, it's, it's a quite simplistic way, but it, it is like a cloud, mm. happiness and depression up and down. It, it, it can kind of, it can kind of move away quite quickly. And I think one of the re- ways I've dealt with my mental health is that nothing is permanent. Mm. Um, and I think that that simple analogy has helped me a lot. What would you say to that as a, as a, not, not, not a solution, but an immediate kind of thought around, I'm feeling really shit at the moment, but it's impossible to feel like this forever. Mm. I find it, it's so true. Personally, I find it very difficult. Mm. And whenever I speak to people like you who have been, in a suicidal situation yourself, mm. I learn a lot mm. because I've always wanted to understand my dad and why he took his own life. And the sad reality of it is, is, is it's a hundred percent true that what my dad was experiencing in those last moments before he took his own life wasn't permanent. Mm-hmm. If he could have had a bit of hope or, or something to keep him going for another day. Yeah. Who knows? In yeah. that next day, he could have got something to get him slowly out of that place. Mm. Now, that wasn't my story. That's not my dad's story. Okay. But as you say, I think anyone who's in a suicidal situation, it's understanding that that individual doesn't want to die. They just cannot deal with the mental pain no. that they're enduring any longer in that moment. But give them a little bit of hope. Yes. They can slowly get out of it. And in your experience, I'm sure... You know, you, you, you feel that as well. Oh, 100%. And I can resonate with your with your dad around when you're in that situation. Well, when I was in that situation, I was almost looking forward to ending my life mm. um, because I, I felt that this feeling wouldn't change. And I think that I wasn't necessarily given the tools or didn't have the knowledge that that I, that I, ha- that I have now. Um, 
and it's like a hook you, you know you, it's 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 almost it's a very surreal feeling and people think it's a selfish thing i mean i've got i've got kids but i think that's just a lack of understanding around when someone wants to actually end their life i see that as a selfless thing because the burden of me being alive was more than um anyone should bear and i think i think what pisses me off is people who jump on that bandwagon around, oh, I can't believe that that person's done that. What, what mm. pisses you off about the mental health misunderstanding the most? That, I think with suicide, it's someone putting complete judgment on my dad without knowing who he was. Mm. You know, he was an incredible man. Like he was a, a very successful man in the ways of, you know, incredible runner and great dad. And, and of course he had his flaws. We all do, but, um, yeah. and I could list them, but at the same time, he was an incredible man. I'm very grateful that I had him for 18 years. But if I say he takes his, he took his own life, oh God, you know, can't mm. believe he let his family down. You know, it's, it's weakness, all of this stuff that maybe yeah. would someone would say about that. Mm. That's what, that what, that's what frustrates me because again, doesn't frustrate me as much as it used to because yeah. I know that that comes from a place that they don't understand. There's a lack of understanding education there. Mm. But but as you say, I mean, one of the things that helped me massively was I had real struggles for a while believing that my dad didn't love me. You know, how could he have done this to me? Mm. And and also when I become a dad, there was yeah. a moment where I was um I was feeding my little one with a bottle and it was middle of the night, so sleep deprivation doesn't help with this stuff. No, you know? not at all. But I remember looking him in the eyes and I was so angry at my dad. This was seven, eight years after. Sure. And the reason why I was angry is like, I can't leave him. I can't leave him. So how could yeah. you have left how, me? How could he have possibly done that? And so understanding through hearing people like you and, mm. and, and um, lots of research around it, that in that moment, my dad felt like he was a burden to everyone that he loved. Yeah allows me to understand that, of course, he loved us. Mm. But in that moment, he felt like that was the best thing for us. The anger might well have subsided, but the grief will never mm. go away. If, if I may, talk, talk to us a bit more about some of the detail around how your father ended his life and, and, and subsequent to that, how you've actually manoeuvred yourself to be in a position where you've not just coped with it, you've then built your business around that experience and you're helping thousands of other people. So talk to us about that whole Mm. journey that's okay yeah sure um i'm always um conscious of using methods in the way of of which Mm. someone has taken their own life so i won't share the method but Mm -hmm. you know when my dad attempted it was very similar to to his actual suicide and Mm -hmm. and again this is something that was was hard to understand you know it was completely out of character for my dad in 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 the way that, that he took his own life and and i think there's a lot of challenges that come with that there was like local press involved there was you know all of that stuff that we then had to deal with as a family yeah. my dad was a, a people pleaser so he was just like you know um it was it was something that we just couldn't get our heads around that wow and and also leading up to that you know i reconnected with a uh, one of a, a family uh, sort of i think she was my dad's second cousin mm-hmm. and i was out for a walk and i bumped into her she was with my dad that day it happened and completely forgot about it. And she was at my nana granddad's house. She was with my dad, and she said to me a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago when I met her, she was like, "He was fine. He was yeah. this, he was just normal. He was chatting yeah. to me like it was a normal day." Um, but we, in my opinion and my experience, my dad had a really bad weekend mm. before his suicide. He was at my nana granddad's temporarily, and, and we went round to see him, and he was upstairs in his bedroom. And in their bedroom, should I say, and he was curled up in a ball on the bed and he was in just his pair of running shorts and right. and it was probably one of the worst I worst moments I've seen him. Um and I remember he he got up and he was like, I'm gonna go for a run. And I was like, Dad, you're not going anywhere, like you're not in a good place. Obviously he'd been in and out of a mental health unit at this point. Yeah. And I stopped him and I stopped him and as I stopped him, my dad looked me in the eyes. And he raised his fist to me. And my dad has never, ever, I've never seen my dad had a fight, never seen my dad get angry. But as I looked my dad in the eyes, there was this, it's really hard to explain. It wasn't like it was my dad. And then all of a sudden, my dad's eyes changed. His fist came down, he sat on the bed. 
And he then become like this vulnerable yeah. man again. Yeah, yeah. And he knew that in that moment, I'm stopping him from going for a run, which I knew wasn't him going for a yeah, run. It was course. something else that he wanted to do. Um, but he got taken into the hospital on that day, on the Saturday. And it was just, again, challenge after challenge of trying to get him into the mental health unit. It took us about 12 hours to get him into this mental health unit. Mm. And long story short, he was released on Monday after a physical assessment, not a mental assessment. And and. He was smart in the way that he he said, ring my ring my mum and dad, who my nan and granddad were quite elderly, yeah. get them to come pick me up. Right. So they come and picked him up, took him back to theirs. Yeah. And I saw my dad that night before and I was just exhausted. I didn't know what to do anymore. And I thought to myself, I'll check in with him tomorrow and I'll go around there and we'll think about a different approach and we'll try and do something different. Sure. And yeah, sadly, that was the day he took his own life. Um, and it was just, you know, he went missing for a while. So we had all of that yeah. and yeah, it was, it was just hor- It was just horrible experience. And I think the hardest thing and I speak about this quite a lot is we got told that my dad had just died and he died from suicide. Sounds really strange, but three hours later, me and my brother order in fish and chips from the fish and chip shop because you, you've got, you've life carries on mm. and you're sitting there completely just you're numb, shocked. white. Yeah. But at the same time, you got to go home. You got to go home, got to go to bed, wake up the next morning. Me and my mum walk the dog. People, hey, morning, how are you? You've literally just gone through that tragic experience, but life carries on. And I found that a very weird concept as well. Do you feel there's an element of not expecting it, but it was less of a surprise because of what happened before? Or Yeah, 100%. I, I was at work and I rung my granddad. How's dad? He's fine. He's good. He's yeah, fine. Right. I rung him again. How's dad? He's gone for a walk. And I, I, I knew with those words that this isn't right. This isn't right. Yeah. So I had this feeling because of the lead up to it, that Saturday, everything, that this wasn't going to be my dad going for a walk. I strongly believed that this was going to be a very challenging situation. Mm. I rang my mum, rang my brother. We was all at work. Yeah. Hours had passed dad hasn't come back so we all left work we all went to my nan and granddad's um so yeah completely as you've just shared it was six months of up and down with my dad that six month was eggshells just constantly constantly how's he going to be today is he going to try and take his own life is he not is he getting better it was just a real yeah eggshells for six months which was very hard so the, the word depression um how would you how would you define that Good question. Is it a mindset thing? Is it a circumstance environment thing? Um, Depression is a is a diagnosable mental illness. Now, the challenge is I was told by a doctor that I had depression. Right. And I run. <laughs> run in the way that I was like, no, I don't. Mm. Um, I don't want to take those antidepressants that you're trying to give me. And the reason why I did that is because the biggest fear is I'll end up like my dad and I don't want to take my own life like my dad. And all of a sudden, now I'm at the doctor's being told I've got depression. Oh, well, I'm going to go the same way as him. So I went the opposite. Now, if I do think back to that, if I was, this is my personal experience. Was I personally dealing with depression? I'm not sure I was. I was grieving. Mm. And I think a lot of grief and the challenges of grief are quite similar to, to depression. But depression, as it is, is a diagnosable mental mental right. illness. Yeah, yeah. However, um, I would definitely say that it's become potentially one of the mental illnesses alongside anxiety that we probably yeah. use too freely. So what would you say that the, the signs are then of... of, of, of uh, you can't necessarily predict what, if and when someone's going to have suicidal ideation, but what, what signs are there do you think that it, it, it's not just anxiety or, or, or fear or depression not, not just this they're, they're severe but it's almost worse than that and someone might be thinking about these these suicidal thoughts yeah i think if i think about my dad again i always say that my dad broke down very quickly 
and there was no behavior changes. But actually, if I think back now, mm. knowing what I know now, there were so many behavior changes. You know, he was struggling to sleep. He'd yeah. changed work. He was saying no to social events. Yeah. Um, we went on a family holiday. He cried and my dad didn't really cry. He said he felt like he'd let us down with the, the hotel that he booked. And and this is all over a, wow. pe a period of 18 months. Mm. So you, you think about that. Why did we not realize that he was struggling? Well, the answer is we're not looking for it. No. You know, I never would have believed my dad would have took his own life. Never for yeah, one second. Um, yeah. So so behavior changes is very unique to that person. And I think if we're more aware of, is this a behavior change linked to them potentially struggling with their mental health? We can ask that question. Now, when it comes to someone who could be suicidal, yeah. there are some other behavior changes that people often talk about, which is um, talking openly about ending their own life. Yeah. For example, it doesn't have to be as direct as I'm going to take my own life. It could be, mm. I don't feel like I should be here anymore. I feel like the world would be better off without me. Like yeah. words like that. Yeah. Another one, um, which I could definitely resonate with, with my dad was um, giving away of possessions. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, okay. My dad was, just like my granddad, one of the tightest men that you'll meet. If, if you ever go on holiday, he'll be finding the best deal for right, it. Right, right. And as as it come towards the end of his life, he was very giving with his money. Yeah. He'd buy um, his godson a Nintendo Wii. He was like, to me, you know, he bought me my first car, but it was like, I'm going to buy you the car, but you're going to pay me back and you're going to put a bit of interest on top of it. You know, that right. was my dad's way of installing some lessons into us, yeah. which, I, which I thought was a good lesson. But then he was like, don't worry about the car. Like, just, just giving away his possessions and his money um, was definitely one of the biggest signs, I think, for my dad leading up to that point. So, so, so what, do you, what do you think contributes to, to depression and the, you know, the suicidal thoughts and the actual the act of doing, doing it? I mean, obviously, we know that the biggest uh, killer or age is sort of middle-aged men, isn't it? Mm. You know, the same age as your father. Um, is, is it things like money? Is it society? Or what, what, what are the most common contributions to, to, to people wanting to end their life, do you think? Mm. It's a good question. I'd like your opinion on it as well, because mm. I mean, because of your experience. I mean, yeah. I, I, I've learned a lot from a, a guy, um, Professor Rory O'Connor. He's on any documentary on suicide. He tends to make, a, make an appearance. Um, he's an incredible guy. He's based up in, in Glasgow. He heads up suicide research at Glasgow okay. University, and he's been studying suicide for... I don't know, I'd like to say over 20 years, but I might have, might be wrong there. Yeah. But um, I did a podcast with, with Rory O'Connor um, mm -hmm. for a charity. And he, he made me understand something that was really important when it comes to understanding suicide is there was never one reason why. Yes. So again, with my dad, the challenges that I had from the grief was I was trying to answer that one reason. Like, yeah. why did he do it? And, and it's, yeah. it's horrible, but people often ask that question to me. It's true. Yeah. Why did your dad do it? Was yeah. he worried about money? Was him and your yeah. mum okay? So I'm trying to find this one reason. And what Rory O'Connor highlighted to me was you look at the how can't someone can become suicidal. There mm. is a plethora of reasons. Absolutely. You know, it could be childhood experiences, yeah. trauma could be, yeah. you know, this feeling of entrapment, this, this feeling like, you know, you're a mm. burden to everyone around you. Yeah. You know, all of this stuff is so complex but still the challenge that I have and he also has is when you see a newspaper article about 15 year old takes her own life because of social media bullying. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's a, a reason, Specific. but it's not the, the exact no. reason why that person's done that because yeah. sadly other people get bullied on social media and they don't take their yeah. own life. So it's not a simplistic approach. And that's why I was going to push that question back to you. Yeah. Do, do you agree that when you was in that place, there was one reason or was it a plethora of different reasons? I think it was a culmination of things. I think, I think when I look back, I, I could point to one particular reason, um, but it was a culmination of feeling unworthy, mm. feeling more worried about what other people think about mm. me than I think about me. And kind of it was it was more what what society how I was parented all that kind of stuff it kind of it, how I was programmed to think and feel I just felt everyone f felt and thought a certain way about me that was completely unrealistic mm. so although there was there was a lot of problems with with my personal life at the time and finances and loads of stuff going on um, actually I think. It was just just a just a lack of an inability to be able to 
regulate my emotions and 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 and, and love myself like now I, I i wouldn't even consider well maybe that's maybe i would but i i see myself in such a different light now to what i was then i, I love myself now and that's and so for me it was it was you know it's, it's making me emotional talking about it now I, th I think that i can understand why i wanted to jump in front of that train because i felt so low about myself so in a way uh having the empathy for myself has enabled me to have empathy for other people as well mm. so in answer to your question um i think it's not always one thing i think it, there's always a build-up and it's usually usually from childhood trauma i'd mm. say yeah did you feel um did you feel shame as well when you was in that moment oh i felt so much shame but i i, I had this sense of relief around mm. so I, I was planning it for about a week and um I knew which train station to drive to, got in my car, was actually excited about, all I could think about was, oh, the relief I'm going to feel to, to end my life. It was just this surreal moment. Got on the platform and waiting for the train to come. The train slowed down and then I got a phone call and the train stopped and I got a phone call and it snapped me out of it. But um, and there's two or three times when I've, I've thought about d doing it. I've lost three friends to it as well um so like doing this podcast with you and, and and talking about it i know there's people out there that think am i or are we only doing this for sympathy or, or mm. and i ask myself why am i doing this i'm genuinely doing this to help myself and other people because this is such a common thing as an example there's a bridge called um, clifton suspension bridge in bristol uh, I was walking across that bridge about seven or eight weeks ago and I, I, I walked past this lady on a bench with her hands in her head crying. And for some reason, I said, I've got to go and stop. So I, I went over and talked to her. She said, my brother committed suicide from this bridge yesterday. It's just, it's, it's just, it's so common mm -hmm. and, and it's such a tragedy. And, and if, if, if one person listens to this and it stops them doing it, it's a result. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's the... The approach that we need to take because as we mm. were talking about earlier there's not a quick fix to this there's just constant yeah awareness 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 i had this incredible um when i first started to share my story i was always thinking about can i help someone like my dad if i yeah. can help someone like my dad i'd be happy then i started to get messages from people that were saying that it helped their grieving process of yeah. losing their dad or losing their husband or brother. Mm. But then the one that really surprised me was I had messages from dads that said, reading the pain that you went through, yeah. I just, I'm not, I was in a suicidal situation and I really thought about it because mm. they've seen through what I've shared, the pain from a child's perspective in comparison yeah. as well. And yeah. it was always really interesting to me. I never did it for that reason. But like you say, I think mm. vulnerability has this, incredible way of encouraging more people to talk openly about it and yeah you know social media gets a bad rap but i think it's an yeah. incredible platform to just raise awareness and, and get those stories out there unimaginable that you know i could have been doing this 25 years ago i think it's mm. it's it's yeah i think if you go into it in the same way as you and i we've lived experiences why lived experience yeah. is so important every talk every podcast every whatever i'm thinking about one person one person if i can help one person i'll yeah. be happy if I come into this just looking for short-term fulfillment and money, mm. I probably would have quit ages ago because, you know, it's a different approach. I think yeah. if you're just thinking about one person that you can help, it also creates a ripple effect out. That lady on the, the bench, yeah. you talking to her, you don't know what happened after that moment. No. She could have gone and spoke to someone else and that person could have spoke to someone else and that all starts from one conversation that you had. I mean, I'm not trying to sort of claim any kind of acknowledgement or recognition for it, but her, her, her physical appearance and her body completely changed in a mm. positive way. I, I, don't, I can't remember what I said to her, but I, I, just, I just listened to her and was there for her and she just, she kind of like, it was just a sense of, ah. Oh, I'm not going through this alone, mm. and I think that's 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 not the answer, but that's the way to do it. Is to is it, we're all going through this, mm. and it's it's not weak to, to to cry or show or show vulnerability. And um, you know, I think I think that um, bravo to you, bravo to you for utilizing what happened to you um, in such a positive way. I mean, 
how how does it affect you now sort of 10 12 years down the line or well, maybe longer than that actually isn't it I mean, yeah it still affects me um little things get me like we did a post the other day where there's a photo of me and my dad running and i was probably about i don't know four my dad's got really short short songs he was a good runner you can only wear those if you're good and yeah. then and then we did a a photo comparison where it was me and my my six-year-old running in the park now we took this photo of me and my six-year-old running in the park didn't think anything of it but when it was put side by side we was at exactly the same position as me and my dad so i was on right. the left side my dad was on the left side i was when i was a kid i was on the right side my son was on the right side mm -hmm. and i looked at that and it got me and i was like Oof. you know that's hit me in a way that I didn't expect it to hit me. Yeah. Um, so it gets me at different moments. You know, we lost my, my granddad a few years ago now. Um, he was my dad's dad and my dad was an only child. And, yeah. you know, we, I become a, a carer for him because of, as his health deteriorated. And there was moments where my dad used to call me Neil, which is my, my granddad used to call me Neil, which is my dad's name. So right, of course. when my granddad's health was declining, he'd be like, hi, Neil, how's the boys? And at this time I had two boys. And he's like, how's Paul and Steve, which is me and my brother. Mm. Mm. And that really kind of got to me because I'm like, I'm now being seen as my dad with my yeah. two boys and he had two boys and, yeah. and I found that difficult. And then there's also moments where I think when I get to my dad's age, I'll struggle, 45. You know, when right. I get past that point, I've surpassed yeah. that point where my dad got to. So yeah. I'm, I'm still impacted by it. I'm still affected by it, but I also am very... I find it incredible that I think my dad has, and I say my dad, I tell his story. My dad has had such an impact on so many people because of, you know, because of the work that I do. And and my dad has gone on to help a lot of people, I think. Have you ever had suicidal ideation? There was a moment when I lost my dad and it was about a few months after where I was driving home from from somewhere it was late at night mm -hmm. and i was crying and i think i was listening to a song that me and my dad used to listen to and i had a, a thought of if i just keep driving at this speed into this wall what would happen and i got closer and then i turned um wow. turned carried on driving mm. And what's interesting is I look back on that experience, I would say that I didn't have suicidal ideation then. I didn't. I would never say that I was suicidal. Yeah. What I would say I was trying to do was get to, in, to a place of where my dad was at to try and understand it. Uh, I couldn't, at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't get it. I couldn't sure, understand sure. why or how or any of that. Um, but I would say, fortunately, I wouldn't say that I've been in a place no. apart from that, okay. though I have been suicidal. Um, kids, I, I read a stat. But one in six kids have depression. Is, is that right? Yeah, one in might be one in six children have a diagnosed mental illness. Right. Okay. So it used to be one in eight. Yeah. Whereas I think now it's one in six children have a diagnosed mental illness. So this is the point, right? I, th I think that it feels this is very much an adult thing, but that's so not true. No. What can we do to to sort of address that? Because I think we've got to deal with our own mental health, but we cannot forget our children. Mm. Yeah, I think suicide is the biggest killer of young people as well. So mm, um, of that's what baffles me. I think if there was a physical a physical illness that was the biggest killer of young people, yeah. there would be a lot more resource and funding and everything. But because it's suicide and, and mental illness, yeah. and because there's probably a lot more you have to invest to try and get that right, we're kind of just ignoring it and forgetting it. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's shocking the amount of young people struggling. Um, I'm not sure of the answer. I think we have to embed it into the education system better. Yeah, um, We have to do more for the parents um, to make sure that they are, their mental health's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a dad myself, I know that I'm probably sometimes a more reactive dad when I'm not in a good place mentally. I'm sure mm. you can relate to that. Yeah. So again, I think if I'm in a good place mentally, I am a better mm. dad and I can inst install those lessons better on my three boys. Sure. Um but yeah, I, I think from a from a parent point of view, what I try and do, I've got three boys, different ages. Mm -hmm. um, my eldest is thirteen. He's he's my stepson. I met him when he was eighteen months old. Oh, nice. He calls me dad. He's got a good relationship with his dad, and we've all got a good relationship. Um, yeah. And then my my middle one is six six, and then my youngest is nine months old. So I've got three really s split out. And so my thirteen year old in particular, and also my six year old now, 
what I try and do is be very open about how I feel. So yes. I'm open to say, I'm really sorry at sh for shouting at you like that last night, but I yeah. felt this way. Um, also what me and I do, and also my wife, give her give her credit as well. You know, we both go to therapy. Mm -hmm. um, when my wife goes to therapy on a Monday, we're very open about that. You know, mummy's going to therapy. Um, yeah. And I'm very open about that. I'm going to therapy tonight. I think that used to be something that probably my parents wouldn't talk about. They would just kind of do yeah. it in the background and, and yeah. brush brush it under the carpet so i think as a parent i'm i'm not perfect but i try to be as open as i possibly can and not be afraid of of being vulnerable myself in front of my kids i, I, I love that so well, i think we asked this question before about why is it men more than women and, and, and i and i my answer to it is i'll ask you as well is my answer to it it's 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 the indoctrination of kind of like men going out to win the money up until recently but you know but men being the breadwinner or, or, or men, men needing to have a certain status or job title, mm. all that kind of stuff. And when, when someone loses their job or the, the pressure of, of, of that, I think, plays a big part. But I think that's changed because there's a lot more equality and equity in, in, in the world now. But I feel that the main reason for it is, 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 is how we're taught not to, not to show our emotions. Whereas as women, it's, it's, it's normal for a woman to, mm. to cry. But if a man cries, it's like, mate what are you doing man up mm. i think that's the fundamental one of the fundamental reasons i think what do you think yeah there, i think there's, there's a lot of reasons to why men potentially die by suicide a lot more than the women i think men die from suicide three times more than women currently mm -hmm. um women are more likely to attempt suicide than men but men are three times more likely to die from suicide and it's equally when you look into some industries like construction you know mm -hmm. suicide rates in construction is really high now what yeah. is construction it's lots of men yeah, <laughs> and it's an environment where if you as you just shared there was caught crying on a construction site what would people mm. how would how would people approach that i think mm. it's it's changing but the natural reaction would be to to tell that person to man up to avoid and to to shame yeah. them um i think there's a lots of reasons i think as you say one of them is men struggle to talk to other men that's changing this yeah. conversation here is very rare yeah <laughs> like yeah i do it for work you do it for work you see it a lot but it is very rare. Yeah. There's a lot of friendship groups that still wouldn't have open conversations about mental no, health and how they feel. Um, but I think coming back to your experience of when you were suicidal and, and, and your feelings of how other people perceived you, I think your point of men in particular feeling like they've let their family down or feeling like yeah. they have not lived up to a level of what it takes to be a successful man mm -hmm. and the shame that then comes from that is also a big big reason why but yeah there's lots of incredible um charities andy's man club is is incredible it was okay. started by a guy <coughs> called um luke hambler who sadly lost his brother-in-law to suicide and they started with one group so just let's get men in a room let's four five six of them facilitator and we'll just get them to talk openly about it they've yeah. now got i think each week they have about four thousand men across the country, um, all meeting up in different locations across the UK. Amazing, um, you know, calm campaign against living miserably, focus on men's suicide in particular, doing some great work with footballers and you know comedians mm. and just just getting men to understand that, as you say, it's okay to be vulnerable. So we've got a long way to go, but <coughs> yeah, it's it's sh slowly shifting and changing, which is good. We're kind of coming towards the end of it. I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating and I, I'm so proud to be in the same room as you and have this podcast because what you're doing is is so important um, so thank you for everything that you've shared so far um, what can employers do more of to help em employees there's lots but I think from an employer point of view <coughs> you have to start with the right intent so what, what I mean by that is when you look at like your well-being strategy for an organization, lots of employers will focus on the what and then they'll figure out the why. Yeah. We talk about flipping that. Start with the why and figure out the what. So sense. the what is we've got free fruit. We've got a slide in our office. We've <laughs> got this talk. We've got this. We've got that. Yeah. Why are you doing all of that? Oh, we, we should be doing it and we've been told to do it. So yeah. flip it. What's the why? Is it that you want more people to feel comfortable to talk to managers? Is it that you want you know, um, your absence levels to decrease slightly when it comes to mental health. Like mm. what's what's the why? And then figure out the what, the initiatives, the stuff that you invest money in after. So I think that's a key thing. The, the second key thing is um, similar to what we've been speaking about today, really embrace lived experience. 
Yes. If you can get people in your organization that feel comfortable to share their story, totally. let them, but also wrap support around them. Like we're, we're, we're now doing a lot more support for mental health first aiders in businesses by offering supervision to them and offering them that support because yeah. my biggest challenge with mental health first aid is it's incredible to get people speaking about their story and helping others, but let's not forget them. Let's support those supporters. So I yeah. think get more people to share their story. I've seen it happen time and time again. I'll come and share my story in an organization and then one of their colleagues shares their story. Yeah. No disrespect to what I do, but that colleague sharing their story is far more powerful mm. because they're like, I've worked with Chris for 10 years. I didn't know yeah. he went through that. And now I can also relate to you because I work with the same company as you. I then feel more trusting and confident to share how I feel. Yeah. And that's when I think, you know, stigma in an organization starts to change. I think it's so important that what I'd like to see with the bigger organizations, which shouldn't be size dependent, is that you've got HR departments, you've got marketing departments. Why can't we have mental health and wellbeing departments mm. and businesses where, you know, there's a dedicated approach to it where at least once a week, everyone has a non-work meeting where they're encouraged mm. to share. Um, you know, there, there's an X number of mental health, mental health first aiders or champions in a business or, or certainly on the curriculum, on the school curriculum, I, th I think it, it needs complete reform, and yeah. I think we're getting there, aren't we? But we're getting there, and it's it's offering a plethora of options. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that's why I think we're still ignoring it because mm. you take um you take an organisation. If you could just say call this number and you'll be fine, mm. that, great. That yeah. sounds fantastic. Yeah. But the 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 problem is, is that's not how how we're going to change it you have to everyone is so unique and individual someone might want support for this specific challenge someone might yeah. want this support so it's trying to provide that holistic approach and it's the yeah. same as you say you know you look at cams and the waiting list for young yes. people it's yes. shocking yeah but again the challenge is is for them to really make that work the amount of investment has to go into having different options right. for young people because if you just try and direct every young person who's struggling into one box, okay. it's not going to work. So it's, it's, yeah. So, so a business of say 50, 60, hundred people, um, if they phoned you up and they engage with you, what, what do they expect from you? What, how does your program work? So we tailor everything. So, um, it's about understanding the industry, understanding the business, understanding yeah. what their key whys are and their objectives and their needs. Yeah. And then we obviously deliver webinars and workshops and training. We have an app, we have mental health first aid support. So it's not right, okay. throwing everything at them from day one. No. What we try and do is say, okay, let's start here. Maybe it's just these four webinars on these four topics. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to recruit some mental health champions in your business. Sure. That's going to be year one. Then we'll reassess and then we'll do this in year two, this in year three. Mm -hmm. That, in my opinion, is far more effective than throwing lots of money and lots of stuff at people and yeah. it not have an impact. I've seen that happen, especially with a lot of the big organizations, invested a huge amount of money into a lot of this stuff and they're still guessing mm. and they still don't know what works. Yeah. So instead, strip it back, go to the basics and start to apply some stuff and, and look at what's working, learn from it and then build on that. I think that's mm. where you start to have a lot more impact. Okay. Um, just, just in closing, what would you offer to the audience around anyone who's going through suicidal ideation and or the survivor the the i think the aftermath of someone who commits suicide so i shouldn't say that who's ended their life i should say you know the impact that leaves you know the coping mechanism what what, what kind of advice if you like would you offer in those situations to people i think from my personal experience if you have someone who is potentially listening or watching this and they are suicidal i think it's trying to get them to a place where, as you say, you reach out for that support. You know, yeah. there's lots of options, Samaritan shout, there's lots of options there, just one person. Mm. I think, as I've always shared, that one person or that one avenue in your experience as well, yeah. if you just get that little bit of hope in that moment to get you out of that kind yeah, of tunnel of vision, you know, you don't know where that's going to take you. As you say, it's never, it's never permanent, but it's hard for people to understand that. There's a great quote that says, hope stands for hold on pain ends mm. and again it's just giving them that little bit of hope to allow them to know that that yeah. pain will end if you just hold on um from the other sense of it if you've been bereaved by suicide mm -hmm. again i think it's a very unique grief surround yourself with people that have experienced it yeah i think when you surround yourself with people that haven't it, i never found that to be beneficial no it's very unique sure you know so sure. Suicide & Co, I'm a trustee for, they offer um, counseling, they offer lots of support for those bereaved by suicide. Mm -hmm. um, 
and yeah, just just trying to find specific bereavement support. Sobs is another one who who offer like groups as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, just just try and reach out to people that have experienced it because I do think in that example, lived experience is really key. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm humbled and honoured to have you on the show. I think what you're doing is fantastic. How you've dealt with your situation and used it to help so many people is 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 commendable and brilliant. So thank you for coming on. I'm sure. Uh, there's going to be more than one person that's benefited from this. So bravo to you. Thank you. No worries. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The Purpose Led Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Vincherry, the recruitment operating system used by over 20,000 recruiters worldwide. I chose to partner with Vincherry because I'm a customer and I love their modern rec operating system, a single tech platform to streamline the front, middle and back office operations of executive search, perm contract and temp businesses. If you're looking for a breed of new tech partner, talk to Vincherry. They have followed us on support with seven offices around the world. Check them out at vincherry.io forward slash Chris O'Connell for an exclusive offer for all listeners.